Accessible World tonight as October 25th, and we have the privilege of having Mr. Ira Pastel, who is going to present part two of his interpretation on uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Go ahead. All right. Thank you very much. Um, Connecticut Yankee, we talked about the first ten chapters about, uh, I think, in September. Um, it is a long book, and particularly this middle section that we're going to talk about tonight is very long, too long, as a matter of fact. It extends from Chapter 11 through Chapter 38, so it is about 200 pages in my Signet Edition, which is more than half the length of the whole book. So uh, a lot to, to do tonight. Um, I thought, would you like to start with a question? I, I would, Margaret here, I would if I may. You mentioned in an earlier um, lecture that Twain went on a, um, a kind of lecture tour. Actually, it was at the, uh, on, while well, on the lecture tour, he was with George Washington Cable, another American humorist. And uh, Cable and Twain went into a bookstore in Rochester, New York one night. And Twain had never read Sir Thomas Mallory's uh, Mort d'Arthur, which is the, the book that has all the Arthurian legends. And Cable introduced him to that book. And Twain bought the book and just absolutely loved it and immediately started thinking about writing uh, a, a book that would take uh, place at least partly in King Arthur's England, in the time of King Arthur, which is about the 6th century A.D., yeah, well, no, thank you. I, what I was wondering is, would, would an author like Twain have done the kind of, not obviously exactly, but the kind of lecture or tours or promotional, the kind of thing that today we would call like a promotion of a book, was, was that sort of thing done? Okay, that's a very interesting question. The kind of tour that he was on was not a book promotion tour. Uh, he used to, to lecture, and mostly what he'd do would be tell stories and humor. Uh, he was a master storyteller, as you probably can guess. And um, he got big audiences. People loved to listen to him lecture. And if you've ever seen uh, Hal Holbrook's Mark Twain Tonight, Holbrook does the kind of thing that Twain did on tour. He told stories, he told jokes, he read from his books. Very successful on the lecture platform. People loved to come and hear him. He sold out the very first lecture that he gave, and that was in San Francisco. And whenever he needed money, he'd go out on the lecture circuit because he could get quick cash for it. And he would get the money quickly because people would pay at the box office, and by the time he left the theater, he'd have his money that night. Now, as to promoting the book, and that's what you're talking about, uh, Twain was unusual among many authors, even in the 19th century, in that a lot of his books were sold by subscription. They have uh, hire, hire agents to go around the country and knock on people's doors and say, uh, how would you like to buy the next book by Mark Twain? You're guaranteed to get 500 pages, and it'll be, you know, it's Mark Twain's books. You, you know Mark Twain. You love him. Uh, sign up now and pay in advance, and you'll, you'll get the book as soon as it comes out. And he did a lot of that. He, he sold books by subscription before they were even printed. 
So it's a completely different kind of uh, publication. The interesting thing, though, is that today, what with the Internet now, self-publishing has become very much more uh, important and very much more accessible. And a lot of things that you get today, that you buy today, were not put out by you know, major publishing houses uh, and the authors sent on big, big uh, publishing tours, you know. Uh, with the Internet, it's a lot easier to reach an enormous number of people very inexpensively. And it's changing the whole book business. I don't know if you saw, but last week, Amazon.com announced that they are now signing up authors. They're not even uh, waiting for publishers. They're signing up authors who will write strictly for them. And Amazon will, in fact, become a publisher. So the Internet is changing everything in the business. Let's go to chapter, uh, part two of the Connecticut Yankee. Starts with chapter 11, and as I mentioned before, it goes 11 through 38, but you can subdivide this into subsections. Uh, I call them either subsections or sets. And the first subsection, the first large subsection, 16 chapters, uh, 11 to 26. And these are largely adventures of the Yankee going around the country, first with Alessandra the Cartevoise, who is his girlfriend and later becomes his wife, and he calls her Sandy. Uh, she shows up at Arthur's castle, claiming that her mistress and 44 other princesses are imprisoned in a castle by three ogres. And all the knights want to go and catch the ogres and uh, release all these princesses. But King Arthur designates Hank Morgan, the, the, uh, the boss, to go on this tour. And the reason why he chooses the boss is the boss has been challenged by Sir Sag Ramor the Desirius, uh, one of the knights who thought that he was uh, slurred by the, the, the boss. Actually, the boss was talking about somebody else, but uh, Sir Sagamore took it personally. So Sir Sagamore is a knight, and the boss is not. He doesn't have a noble pedigree or anything. And Arthur feels that it's necessary for him to go out and have adventures and make a name for himself so that he will be a worthy opponent in, uh, for Sir Sagamore when they eventually fight over Sir Sagamore's uh, grievance. And Sir Sag is off chasing the Holy Grail. So the king says, go now, get yourself a reputation. So that's how he gets stuck with Sandy. And this, is start, this starts with Chapter 11. Sandy tells her story about the 45 captives for 26 years. But, of course, she doesn't know how to get to the castle. She says, oh, it's somewhere out there. There's no, no road to it. Wander around until you find it, basically, is how they, they did things. He asks, is there a map? She says, what's that? You know. So uh, the Yankee says, okay, and they put him in a suit of armor. Uh, he can't put it on himself. He has to be uh, put into it. And they lift him up onto the horse because he can't get on the horse himself with all the armor on. And she climbs up behind him, and off they go. Well, the first two chapters are really comic, and in fact, the second chapter is called Slow Torture, uh, 
the slow torture is first it gets hot when the sun heats up the armor. He can't reach his handkerchief because he's got armor on. The dust gets into him. Uh, he starts to, to itch. A fly gets in under his helmet. He can't get rid of the fly. Uh, it's really horrible. And he can't get off. Uh, you know, once he gets off the horse, he can't get back on again. But the worst torture of all is Sandy, who behind him on the horse, never shuts up for five minutes. She can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and he just can't, he just can't stand it anymore. <laughs> well, finally they get off the horse, but he can't get back on. And he has another problem. At night it starts getting cold, and the armor that was so hot during the day starts to get very cold, and all the bugs come in under the armor to get warm. <laughs> So the poor guy is just absolutely miserable. It's, it's very funny, but at the same time, you feel for the guy because, uh, my goodness, uh, the, the, the horrible things he's going through with his armor. You say, why doesn't he take the armor off? Well, he can't take it off himself. He could have Sandy help take it off, but he says, I couldn't do that because it would be too much like undressing in public. Even though he's got clothes on under the armor, he can't bring himself to have this girl help take his armor off. And this is a very significant thing because it is the evidence of how his 19th century Victorian mind is so completely different from hers. When he first hears that she wants to go with him, he says, what, and me is good, to get, good as engaged? She can't go with me. And she says, why not? I belong to you. You're... You're my knight, and I, I belong to you until somebody takes me away from you. And he can't get over this. He can't get over traveling alone with an unchaperoned young woman. Um, but eventually, he sees that he can't get rid of her, and ultimately, he marries her because he thinks she's going to be compromised somehow. She says, what? What's that? I, I don't understand that. And he says, well, I, can't, I won't fight about it and he marries her anyway. But that's not for a long time yet. However, so the first part of the uh, this section is comic. In fact, most of the first 16 chapters are comic. Uh, the way I have it uh, broken down, I have the first five chapters or so. He's with the Sandy, and these are, for the most part, comic. There's only one part of the first five that's not, and that's in Chapter 13, where they meet a road gang. These are free, free men. They're not slaves, but they have to give their time to the, the Lord of the Manor, and he has them all out mending the road. And they can't do any of their own work. They can't do anything, and they don't get paid for this. Uh, they're free men in name only, but actually they're not slaves, but the next thing to, to slaves. Because they can't leave without the permission of the master. Uh, they have to serve the master, the, the Lord. And so they're free men in name only. In this chapter, uh, Mark Twain writes, what these people needed was a new deal. Now this was written in 1886 or 87 and published in 1889. 
44 years before Franklin Roosevelt came to office in 1933 and announced the New Deal. Now, I've read that Roosevelt himself said that he got the term the New Deal from this book, but I've never uh, seen any confirmation of that, but I, that I'm sure that that's where it came from. It's probable, it's, it's likely that he did read the book when he was a young man, and when he got into office, remembered this term, what they needed was a new deal. And that's how we got the, uh, the term for the anti-depression actions of the Roosevelt administration, 1933 on. The rest of the chapters in this section are fun chapters. One is called Defend the Lord, it's chapter 14. And this one, uh, Hank Morgan, the, the Yankee, has made some... Uh, tobacco out of uh, willow, I think it is, and he hasn't had a, a way to light his pipe. But in return for services rendered, he gets a gift of an iron and flint, you know, that makes a spark, and he's able to light his pipe. Well, <laughs> he runs into seven knights and their squires who are about to attack him. But he has an answer for this. He blows smoke from his pipe through his iron helmet, and he looks like one of the uh, fire-breathing dragons that they're all terrified of, and they're all in a hurry to surrender to him. You know, Mark Twain was an inveterate smoker, and smoking was uh, his triumphant tactic here in defending himself from these seven knights. And then it goes on with Sandy's long story about um, knights and... Uh, captive ladies and all, and he can't shut her up until at the end of chapter 15, he asks, Sandy, how old are you? And she doesn't say a word thereafter. <laughs> so that's set one, chapters 11 through 15, real comic stuff. Uh, the uh, genesis of the Connecticut Yankee was a comic idea. Twain uh, thought about uh, all the problems he would have being an armor and how funny that could be, fall down, can't get up again, always getting hit by lightning, um, you know, all the, all the problems you'd have if you were in iron armor. Uh, and that was the first stuff he wrote. The book is not a comic book. When he finally finished it, it is a terribly depressing, horrifying, in some places even scary book, uh, laced with comic genius in the middle, you know, in, in between the horrors. It's a fascinating book, um, totally unique. Nobody but Mark Twain could ever have written it. Uh, but it is not an easy read. All right, so that's set one in chapters uh, 11 through 15. In 16, 17, and 18, I call this set two, the Yankee and Sandy stumble on the castle of Morgan Le Fay. M-O-R-G-A-N, Morgan is her first name, and Le Fay really means the fairy. She is supposed to be a great sorceress. Actually, she isn't, but she's got everybody scared of her. Morgan Le Fay is the sister of King Arthur, except that she hates her brother, absolutely despises him, and she's unlike him. Arthur was known uh, as a man with a, with a heart of gold. 
an honest, straightforward person who really did feel for his people and tried to be a, uh, a wonderful king. Morgan Le Fay is an evil person from day one. She can talk beautifully. She's a great conversationalist. She's a beautiful woman. But she has no sense of any kind of limits, no compassion, nothing. She's uh, speaking with um, the Yankee and, and Sandy and telling stories. And a page trips and falls against her leg. She takes out a knife and stabs him, kills him right on the spot. 14 or 15 year old boy. Uh, and doesn't even stop talking. She's nothing wrong with this. She's the queen of this little sub-kingdom, and she has the right to do anything she wants, and she is cruel, and she's uh, vicious, and she is not, shall we say, a nice lady. Chapter 16, they meet Morgan Le Fay, and she kills the page in Chapter 16. Chapter 17 is also set in Morgan's castle. It's a royal banquet, and everything is to excess, um, including the fact that uh, she doesn't like the music, so she hangs the composer. Hank goes along with this, by the way. Uh, and later, he hangs Sir Dindan the Humorist later in the book. So he has some things that he shares in common with Morgan Le Fay, besides their name, which is Morgan in both cases. In the course of the evening, everybody gets drunk and everybody gets uh, overfed and whatever. They all hear a sound, and the sound is coming from the dungeons under the dining room. It's a man on the rack who's being stretched. And Morgan goes down and talks to him uh, because Morgan Le Fay is afraid of Hank Morgan because of his huge reputation as this sorcerer who can blot out the sun. She lets him uh, dictate to her. Um, and when he says, I'm gonna, this man is going to go free, she can't say anything about it. He sends the man to his friend, uh, his assistant Clarence back in Camelot, and says, put him in the man factory. One of the things Morgan tries to do in this book, Hank Morgan, one of the things he tries to do as the boss is to create a new kind of person without the uh, sixth century class, uh, royalty, and uh, nobility, and deference to the church and the nobles. Uh, people with a more democratic viewpoint, people who... Uh, are not afraid to stand on their own two feet and would like to be uh, equals with uh, everybody else. And he sets out to change the whole culture of 6th century Britain. And he starts what he calls the man factory. And that's where he sends this man from the rack who he finds out is undergoing this terrible torture because if he confesses, then not only can he be killed, but his wife and children will lose all their property and they'll be destitute. So he's going through this terrible torture so that he does not confess and they can't take his wife's uh, and child children's property. So Morgan appreciates this. He says, this, is, this one's a man, and he sends the whole family down to Camelot to the man factory. What he does here in this book, what he tries to do, is similar to what Mao Zedong tried to do in China. He wanted to uh, 
create the new socialist man. Uh, he wanted to change all the attitudes of China going all the way back to Confucius and beyond. It didn't work for Hank Morgan, and it didn't work for Mao Zedong, and it, had, it didn't work for American perfectionist colonies, all of whom tried one way or another to make new, new people, new kinds of people. Uh, the nature of man is a tough thing to change. It, it doesn't seem to vary very much. Okay. There's one more chapter in Morgan Le Fay's story, and that's called In the Queen's Dungeons. It's chapter 18. And in this one, uh, Morgan wants to see what's going on in the Queen's Dungeons, and he goes down there and uh, finds 47 prisoners, and nobody knows why they're there. And she has been so cruel to some of them. Uh, there's a, a couple uh, that have been in prison for nine years. They were 18 and 25 when they were put in, and now they're in their, they look like they're in their 60s. And when they see each other again, they haven't seen each other all these years, although they've been only 50 feet apart, uh, they don't even respond. They don't even recognize each other. They're just so completely beaten down. Then there are, uh, there's a family. Uh, the man in the family is in the, in the prison, and he can see out of a slit in the wall his home. And he's been in this prison for 25 years, whatever, and from time to time, He's, they have a funeral coming from the house. He had five children and his wife, and there have been five funerals. Who's still alive? Which one of the five? Well, when Hank Morgan gets there, he gets the guy out of the uh, jail, and they go to the house. And what do you think? None of the five, none of the six is dead. His wife is 50 years old. She's alive. His children are all married and have grandchildren. They're all alive. Morgan Le Fay staged all those funerals to make him worry which one was still alive. That's the kind of woman Morgan Le Fay is. Not, shall we say, a nice lady. All right, that's set two. That takes us up to chapter 19. 19 and 20 are more Sandy stories. Uh, Night Errantry is a Trade is chapter 19. And uh, number 20 is The Ogre's Castle. It turns out that the uh, castle where she and her uh, mistress and all her friends were supposedly in prison um, turns out to be a pigsty. <laughs> the question is, did she really believe that this was a castle? Uh, she says, oh, it wasn't enchanted before. And she says, now it's enchanted, it's become a pigsty because it's enchanted all these pigs are all her friends and, uh, and her mistress. And you wonder, you know, did she make up the whole story? Did she really believe that it was enchanted? And we never can get into Sandy's mind because the Connecticut Yankee is narrated by Hank Morgan. And the, the limitation you have when you write in the first person is that you can't get into anybody else's mind as the author can when the story is in the third person. Then we get to chapters 21, 22, uh, 23, 24, 25, 26. This is set four of the, uh, the four parts of this first section of the second, second act, the second section of the book. In chapter 21, Sandy and the boss 
Hank Morgan, join up with a party of pilgrims going to a place called the Valley of Holiness, where there's a famous well that uh, had been clogged up once and by a miracle uh, gave water again. And the monks there are very holy and they won't wash because they thought that uh, the reason the well was sopped up the first time is because that somebody was washing. So they haven't had baths in 200 years. Well, anyway, on the way, they meet a caravan of slaves. Now, these people are really slaves. Uh, unlike the freedmen, they are in irons. Uh, they are bought and sold. They have no rights whatsoever. They are true slaves. And it's a, a very bitter chapter, this, the, meeting the uh, group of slaves. When the book was published in 1889, Mark Twain hired Dan Beard to draw pictures to go with the, the book. Uh, Dan Beard drew pictures using the faces of 19th century people. And for the slave driver, the face he chose was that of Jay Gould. Now tell me you never heard of Jay Gould, right? Anybody know who Jay Gould was? Nobody? Well, Jay Gould was the robbingest of all the robber barons in the 19th century. He cheated everybody inside, including his own partners, and made a huge fortune of money, destroyed businesses and people right and left, and never gave a single cent, as far as is known, to any kind of charity whatsoever. At least some of the uh, great wealthy barons of the 19th century gave back something. Andrew Carnegie gave libraries, millions of dollars worth of libraries. Jay Gould gave nothing. And uh, when he died, his sons went through everything, and in two generations, the Gould family was gone. Uh, it's a great morality tale. Anyway, the slave who driver... Was it? Can I interrupt? Who, who did he yeah, have? Yeah. Morgan Le Fay. What about her? Who did, whose picture was she portrayed as? I don't know who her picture was, because I've never seen that, uh, you know, the original version of the book. Some of the pictures were re reprinted in, in the edition I have but not the one of Morgan Le Fay, so I don't know who she was. Uh, how I, don't, I, I can tell you some of the other people who um, Beard used. The Kaiser of Germany, uh, the Prince of Wales, Sarah Bernhardt, Queen Victoria. Oh, the Yankee was a uh, man working in the next studio <laughs> who happened to come from Connecticut, and Beard drew him as the Connecticut Yankee. He was kind of tall and thin and uh, kind of awkward-looking, gangling-looking guy. Okay, so let's go on. Um, the Yankee gets to the Valley of Holiness, and as he's approaching, he finds out that the fountain has miraculously been shut down. The water won't run after 200 years, and everybody is frantic. Well, the first thing he does is to, when he meets the messenger, who happens to be one of his own knights from the round table, uh, he sends a message with this man back to Camelot and tells Clarence, who is his right-hand man by this time, to send certain chemicals and materials, and he's planning 
another miracle. His first miracle was, of course, the eclipse of the sun. His second miracle in chapter 7 we talked about was blowing up Merlin's tower by using a lightning rod and the gunpowder which he makes. Well, this time he's planning a, a third miracle, and this one is his masterpiece. Uh, you'll find it in chapter 23, but I don't want to talk about that just yet. We want to hold on to that for a minute. One of the things that he does in chapter 22 is he and Sandy visit a bunch of hermits. And each of the hermits is being holy in a different way, uh, and most of them are crazy ways. The Yankee spots one of the hermits on a ho up at the top of a tall tower bowing and praying and bowing and praying and bowing and praying up and down, up and down, up and down, on and on and on and on. What does he do? Well, he hitches up the bowing hermit to a sewing machine and turns out shirts wholesale and sells them for a dollar and a half a piece for five years or so. The hermit keeps bowing and bowing and bowing and the sewing machine keeps going and the shirts keep coming out and he keeps selling the shirts, making, him, making money on it. When there are signs that the hermit's getting old and starting to slow down, he sells the whole business to a couple of other knights, and when the hermit dies, they're left holding the bag and he's got more money. What kind of a person is Hank Morgan? What kind of a person is the Connecticut Yankee? You know how he describes himself at the beginning. At the very beginning, he says, I am a Yankee of the Yankees, uh, my father was a horse doctor, but his, uh, his real trade is making things. I can make anything. If it hasn't been figured out before, I'll figure out a better way to do it. He's very much like the America of 1885. He has no love of poetry or no sentiment. He has no love for music. Uh, he has no artistic sense. He is a single-minded person who sees things as he, he likes to say, I'm a practical man, but what he really is is a limited man. He can do certain things and do them very well. He can make anything, and he can sell anything, and he can stage big scenes. Uh, he's a dramatist. He's a spendthrift, and that comes up later in this section of the book. Uh, but he's not a nice person. He's not a well-rounded man. He's very much interested in power and glory and money. And as one of the uh, critics pointed out uh, some time ago, he is, as an adult, a grown-up Tom Sawyer. And we talked about Tom Sawyer some time ago and how Tom is uh, you know, supposed to be the all-American boy, but actually he's not very nice. He is totally self-centered. He doesn't have any sense of, of empathy for other people. Well, the Yankee is Tom Sawyer grown up. That's the kind of person he is. And that's why, I think, we don't cotton to him. We don't really like him. We don't feel close to him in the book. We don't because Mark Twain meant us not to. Uh, unlike Huckleberry Finn, who's an extremely attractive character and everybody loves Huck, Morgan, the Yankee, is not an attractive character, and it's hard to really like him. And I think Twain had a reason for not making him likable. 
because this book is a satire. And I talked about what a satire is. A satire is an attack on some person, institution, uh, individual, uh, company, any object, but using a stand-in for the real target. In other words, uh, you don't attack John Smith. You attack uh, somebody who is related in some way, a, a substitute for John Smith, and then you let the audience, you let the readers, catch the reference and make the reader part of the satiric attack. And that's why satire is so powerful when it works. The problem is, if the public doesn't get it, if the reader doesn't get the fact that it's a satire, doesn't see the connection between the stand-in target and the, the intended target, then it falls flat. And the Connecticut Yankee has fallen flat with American critics and uh, audiences for much of the period since 1889, since it was written. Even today, you have intelligent readers who don't get the fact that this is a satire. They don't see it. Because what uh, Clemens is doing here is seeming to attack 6th uh, century England through the, uh, the narrator, which is Hank Morgan. But actually, all the things that Morgan criticizes in 6th century England apply equally well to him and to 19th century America. It's a satire, and the ultimate target is the America of Mark Twain's years. And that's why the Dan Beard illustrations are so topical. Beard understood what uh, was going on. Twain said, I'm not going to tell you what to write. But he hired Beard in the first place. He not to tell you what to draw. He hired Beard in the first place, and Beard must have known. So the Connecticut Yankee makes sense not as an attack on 6th century England and the Arthurians, but on the characteristics, human characteristics, that the Arthurians have in common with us today and with the Americans of Twain's time, and pretty much with all times. Uh, you know, Mark Twain once said, uh, there's only one animal that blushes or needs to, and that's man. And he had a very low opinion of uh, homo sapien species. Man is capable of the greatest good, marvelous things, wonderful things, but also capable of the most horrible evils. And that's what Twain is saying in this book. Uh, any more questions there? We've got more things to talk about. The rest of the is Don. I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead, Don. Uh, yeah, I, you, you said, you know, you talk about him, he is in consistency. He faces down Morgan Le Fay in the castle and letting the prisoners out, but he lets this, that poor couple and the slave being driven, the slaves, you know, he, he could have rescued them. Oh, and he, hangs, he certainly he, could have he rescued lets, them. He lets her hang the, the composer, and yeah. uh, he hangs Sir Dinadan himself, you know. And uh, it isn't until the, uh, he goes with the king that he gets a little more sympathetic, and then it's the king being the contradictory characteristics but um, oh uh, yeah but these, they, that's one of the things that makes this book difficult to understand because in one breath he'll say something uh, you know there it is a man is a man at the bottom uh, and in the next breath he'll say just human muck 
Um, the no. other thing that struck me strongly is the arrogance, the disdain that he has for for the everybody the, uh, but himself, uh-huh. he, including the king. I, I want to right. walk alongside the head. That's right. And all through the book, he is not shameless about thinking about uh, after dies a republic, and guess who the, pres the first president would be. He says at one point, uh, absolute power is really the best thing as long as it's in the right hands, meaning, of course, his hands. Yeah. Hank Morgan is not a paragon. He is not, uh, you know, not a uh, noble person. Good to the question of nobility. Uh, we're going to take up that question as we go on uh, through this uh, series of chapters. We're still in set four. The Yankees' masterpiece is the restoration of the fountain. With, uh, he sets up a, um, what would you call it, a, a show. We would call it today a sound and light show. Uh, red fire, blue fire, purple fire, green fire, and uh, a German gobbledygook. Uh, and, of course, he's already had the well fixed and is just waiting for the moment to turn on the water. And um, he pronounces the name of the the spirit and orders the spirit that uh, was blocked up the well to uncork the well and out comes the water and everybody's oh it's glorious stuff uh, it's Hank Morgan at his shall we say showmanship best now we talk about the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court there are a number of Connecticut connections here that may not be obvious on the, on the surface first of all Morgan you were an American in 1889 or 1890, if somebody said Morgan to you, who would you think of? Who was the great American financier? J.P. J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was from Connecticut. His father was from Connecticut. His father was, was also in the banking business. Morgan was the number one name associated with money and power. And he shares the name with Morgan Le Fay and Hank Morgan. Then there's another Connecticut resident who was known as the Prince of Humbugs. He supposedly said, there's a sucker born every minute. Who was it? Barnum. D.T. Barnum. Wasn't that Barnum? From Bethel, Connecticut. Really? Spent almost his whole life in Connecticut. And then there's a third Connecticut resident who uh, has some of these characteristics that Hank Morgan has, including being a spendthrift. Uh, he was not born in Connecticut, but he lived there for much of his adult life. His name was Samuel Clemens. <laughs> Hank Morgan, the Yankee, has characteristics of J.P. Morgan, P.T. Barnum, and Samuel Clemens. In other words, when Mark Twain wrote this book, Part of his target was his own alter ego. And this is what's so fascinating about the life of, of uh, Sam Clemens and Mark Twain. As he grew older, especially after, uh, oh, after 50 or so, he became bitter as Mark Twain about the way his alter ego, Samuel Clemens, was living his life. And if you think of it the other way around, Clemens must have hated himself 
because he goes out and attacks himself in the writings of Mark Twain. The two names, Clemens and Twain, started out just as a pen name. Then Mark Twain became a character in some of uh, Clemens' earlier books. And then he became a critic of what Clemens was doing, and they wind up being almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, two personalities in the same body. And what the things that Clemens did were things that Mark Twain criticized in print. Clemens, uh, you probably know, was a money grubber. He was, was a, been very poor as a kid. They had no money whatsoever. He had to quit school when his father died. He was apprenticed to a printer. Uh, he wanted money all his life. He wanted big money. He wanted it quickly. And he wanted it without having to work too hard for it. And eventually he got it. He married Olivia Langdon. And Olivia Langdon was an heiress who inherited $300,000 in 1870 money from her father. $300,000 in 1870. Have any idea what that would be worth today? Somewhere maybe like $25 million? Something like that. Anyway, Clemens. Clemens married Olivia Langdon and not only got her fortune, but also got her social standing. He was a wild Westerner, you know, nobody had much respect for him. Um, when he was asking for Olivia Langdon's hand, he went to her father, and her father says, well, you know, Clemens, we don't know anything about you. Can you send me some references from your friends out west? Clemens says, sure, I'll have them write to you. Comes back a month or two later, and he says, well, Mr. Langdon, uh, did you get my references? And Langdon looks at him and says, Clemens, haven't you got a friend in the world? All your friends say you're a drunken bum. And then he went on and said, but the girl loves you, marry her anyway. Her, his daughter was getting to the, uh, towards old maid age. She was 25 years old. And he figured that somebody was better than nobody. This might be her last chance to get married. And he saw, uh, you know, he gave permission to Clemens to marry Olivia. So anyway, one side of uh, Samuel Clemens was definitely not, uh, like Hank Morgan, not necessarily a nice person. Another one of his characteristics was he turned on almost all of his friends. You couldn't get very close to Samuel Clemens because even if you did for a while, he would turn on you and denounce you and just go into rages over you. He did it with his uh, nephew in law, um, his sister's daughter's son. He put Charles Webster in control of his publishing company, and then when Webster died at 40 years old, he blamed Webster for everything that ever went wrong in his life. He was a friend of uh, Bret Hart's. He turned on Bret Hart. Uh, he was not a, not a person to get along with. He had a terrible temper. His children were afraid of him as they became adults. Uh, his daughter Susie was so afraid of him that she wouldn't come down to breakfast until he'd left. Uh, gone because she couldn't face his terrible rages. Uh, I mean, uh, we're talking about almost a split personality here. Mark Twain was a wonderful humanitarian. Uh, his works, his books are just fabulous, wonderful statements of all that's good in American character. And here he is writing as Samuel Clemens, against what he was doing as Samuel Clemens, writing as Mark Twain. That brings us up to chapters 20, 
four, twenty-five, and twenty-six. Now Sandy pretty much drops out of the story in chapter twenty-four. Yeah, we don't hear from her again. We don't see her again until chapter forty, at the very end of the book. And this is, uh, you know, this is one of the major characters. She just disappears. He's, he had no use for her apparently in the next part of the book, and he just left her out. Uh, chapter 24 is called A Rival Magician. Another magician is trying to steal uh, Morgan's thunder, but Morgan has the advantage of having a telephone system installed, and he can get information by telephone from Camelot, so he's able to show up the rival magician by being able to predict that King Arthur is coming to the whole Valley of Holiness to see the new well. And he says Arthur and Guinevere and the uh, court are on their way here. The rival magician, of course, said, oh, uh, I don't know, they're sleeping, you know. He says, no, they're not. You're, wait, just wait. When they get here, if, if uh, they don't come, you can have me ridden out of town on a rail. And if they do come, I'm going to have you ridden out of town on a rail. And, of course, they do come, and the other magician is ridden out of town on a rail. Another of his triumphs, Chapter 25, A Competitive Examination. One of the things that galls Morgan is that you have to have a title in the four generations of nobility before you're respected by anybody. And he decides he's going to reform the army. He sets up a military academy and a naval academy and takes all kinds of people, just ordinary commoners, who don't have military uh, backgrounds, and he teaches them military science as it's taught in the 19th century. That's his West Point. But when it comes time to getting officers to the Army, he has his candidates are wonderfully prepared, whatever, but because they don't have titles, they're not eligible. And... <laughs> Uh, they don't get the positions. So he comes up with a great idea. He makes a regiment of nothing but officers, no privates, uh, and he gives them titles. They have to have a title to get into it, and he gives them big, big, you know, big uh, glamorous positions. And all the knights and all the nobility all sign up for this one regiment, and all the other regiments in the army has his own people running. That's another triumph for the Yankee. And finally, chapter 26. Chapter 26 is called The First Newspaper, and it describes the Yankees' feelings when the Camelot Hosanna and Daily of Volcano comes out for the first time, and he sees this newspaper, and he is absolutely so moved by it. He sees this as the, the best thing that's ever happened to him. I want to read how this is described, this is his feelings this way. How beautiful to me, how beautiful, for was this not my darling, and was not all this mute wonder and interest and homage to the newspaper a most eloquent tribute and an unforced compliment? I knew then how a mother feels when women, whether strangers or friends, take her new baby and close themselves about it with one eager impulse and bend their heads over it in a tranced adoration that makes all the rest of the universe vanish out of their consciousness and be as if it were not for that time. I knew how she feels and that there is no other satisfied ambition, whether a king, conqueror, or poet, that ever reaches halfway to that serene, far summit where yields half so divine a contentment. During all the rest of the seance, my paper traveled from one group to another 
all up and down and around that huge hall, and my happy eye was upon it always, and I sat motionless, steeped in satisfaction and drunk with enjoyment. Yes, this was heaven. I was tasting it once, if I might never taste it more. His reaction to the appearance of his baby, the first newspaper. Now that takes place in chapter 26, which is a, a little bit beyond halfway through the book. One of the things that uh, can be so interesting about literature is in structure, frequently the center of the book will be either the high point of the action or a place where the author expresses what's really behind his thinking, what's really the, the core of the book. Always look at the center whenever you read a book. Because the center is where frequently you'll find either the main message of the book or the high point of the action. And in this case, the Yankee really does reach the high point of his being here uh, in chapter 26. Never again is he as contented and as happy as he is right here. Now, because the book was not edited well, Clemens just uh, put it down on paper and sent it away, got it published because he thought he was going to make millions of dollars on the page typesetting machine, and he didn't want to work anymore. And he thought that the, as soon as the page machine was finished, and he thought it was finished uh, that year, uh, he sent the book off, and he wrote to William Dean Howells later saying, I know uh, there's so many things left out, and I know, let it go, um, but if I had it to write over again, it would be different, and I wouldn't leave so many things out. And I, now I can't say whatever else I wanted to say, but you know, he realized that the book was not as well done as it could have been, and as complete as it could have been. But he uh, let it go anyway because he thought he was going to be a multimillionaire from the page machine. Well, he wasn't a multimillionaire from the page machine. The thing flopped, never was completely finished, never earned a cent. Uh, and Clemens and the family lost their entire investment, $300,000, all, all of Libby's money that she inherited from her father. Uh, they lost it all and he went bankrupt at the age of 59. Just when, uh, of course, he thought he was uh, so successful for so many years. Well, anyway, the first newspaper, chapter 26, is the high point of the center of the book. Had the book been better edited, some of the material in the first part, uh, like Sandy's Tale, some of the stuff there, would have been cut out or trimmed or shortened, and this would have come probably in the exact center of the book. Uh, Connecticut Yankee has 40, I think it's 44 chapters. So this is 26. It should come around 22 or 23. So you can see, had he edited and uh, cut and shaped the way he did with Huckleberry Finn, he spent a year after he finished Huckleberry Finn just working it over and improving it. He didn't do that with the Connecticut Yankee. So the center of the book is a little bit off a little bit too loud, but uh, still, this is the high point. Uh, what we call in the, in the trade, the rising action reaches its peak here, and the rest of the book is what we call the falling action. The climax is in the center, in this, in this book. We then get to 
set five of this long central section. Now the king and the Yankee are traveling incognito together. They dispose of Sandy for the time being. The next 12 chapters are bitter, difficult, uncomfortable, nasty, horrible, horrifying. Actually, it's like a horror story. If the first part of the book is like a dream, the second part of the middle section is a nightmare. The first thing we reach is the smallpox hut. This family, the farming family, has lost everything. Their three sons were impressed by the owner of the manor house and couldn't get the crops in, and they're all starving. Then their father dies. They get hit by smallpox. And, in fact, uh, the, the mother was left comes is downstairs, and upstairs is her daughter who is dying of smallpox. And her husband is dead of smallpox. She knows that he's, he's at rest. Uh, she's worried about the daughter. She knows the daughter can't recover, but she can't see the daughter, and she can't carry her downstairs. Who is it who goes upstairs risking his life to carry the girl downstairs to her mother. Who do you think it is? Is it the Yankee? No. It was the king. It's who? Isn't it King Arthur? It's King Arthur. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. King Arthur, who is not always the brightest guy in the world, is a noble person. But he's not just noble because he was born noble. He's noble because of his ability, his willingness to risk something important to him with no, no uh, expectation of any gain for the benefit of somebody else. This is how Mark Twain sees nobility. And nobility can be found anywhere. In Huckleberry Finn, the two noble characters are Huck, the runaway boy, and Jim, the runaway slave. Jim is a noble character because he's not afraid to sacrifice even his precious freedom for the benefit of somebody else, even when that somebody else doesn't deserve it, as Tom Sawyer does it. In the Connecticut Yankee, nobility is found in the nobility, the king. The king is not noble because he's a king. He's noble because he is a personality who will risk his life for the sake of someone else with no uh, expectation of any benefit to himself. So Arthur proves how noble he really is in this chapter called The Smallpox Hut, where he goes upstairs knowing very well that the smallpox is infectious. Everybody knows that the kingdom is full of people who have died from it and scarred by it. And he knows what smallpox is, but that's not going to stop him from bringing that girl downstairs for her mother so her mother can see her for the last time. Nobility is where you find it. It can be anywhere and nowhere. The Yankee is the opposite of noble. He's always thinking about what he can get out of something. The king is truly noble, truly noble, 
not just because he's a king, not because he was born into it, but because of his behavior, because of the way he acts. Then we get to the tragedy of the manor house. There's been a fire at the manor house. The uh, lord of the manor is dead, and the mob goes after the uh, supposed those who were accused of it. No proof, but 18 people are killed. Um, others run away. They're probably they're going to be fugitives. Maybe they'll be killed too. All of this because a mob has no conscience. People will do things in a mob that they won't do individually. And this is the same thing that Mark Twain writes about in Huckleberry Finn when the lynching bee goes after Colonel Sherburn. While it, uh, it, it can get, you know, it can do horrible things as a mob, also is made up of individual cowards, and the mob can be turned back, as Colonel Sherburn does. Colonel Sherburn stands up to the mob, and that and the mob melts away. And we have the same thing happening here. The common people who have been abused by and dominated by the, the lord of the manor actually uh, seek to help punish their own people because they're part of the mob and they have no uh, individuality, no individual control. And that is a tragic and horrible story. Then come three chapters, 31 to 33, which are very difficult for us today. These are the three chapters called Marco, Dowley's Humiliation, and Sixth Century Political Economy. And they concern basically the argument of whether free trade or tariff protectionism is, a, is the right uh, economic policy to follow. Now, in the 19th century, particularly the second half of the 19th century, and uh, about the time Twain was writing, this was one of the biggest political issues, if not the biggest political issue in the country. Should we have high tariffs, uh, keep out foreign imports, and protect American industry, or should we have free trade where we allow competition from abroad and benefit from lower prices from competition? That same argument comes up today, comes up especially during a recession like now, but it's not the issue today that it was in the 19th century. When Twain was writing this, this was the dominant political issue of the period, free trader protectionism. Twain was a free trader, and uh, I'm not surprised that he was. It's the kind of thing that a Mark Twain would be. Clemens might have been a protectionist <laughs> if uh, the page machine, for example, were challenged as it was, actually, by the Mergenthaler linotype. But the page machine was never good enough to compete anyway. But uh, these three chapters are really deadly dull for readers today. One of the things that does happen there is that uh, the Yankee deliberately shows how throw money around and humiliate Dowley, the well-off blacksmith. And he says... I wouldn't feel what that man was feeling for anything after he gets through uh, showing him up. Well, who showed him up? Who was responsible for his humiliation? Here's the paragraph. I don't know that I ever put a situation together better or got happier, spectacular effects out of the materials available. The blacksmith, well, he was simply mashed. 
Lord, I wouldn't have felt what that man was feeling for anything in the world. Here he had been blowing and bragging about his grand meat feast twice a year and his fresh meat twice a month and his salt meat twice a week and all for a family of three. Dolly was a good deal wilted and shrunk up and collapsed. He had the aspect of a bladder balloon that's been stepped on by a cow. Does he have any sense of empathy for the man that he's done this to? He's the one responsible for humiliating the guy. It says, I wouldn't think of it. I wouldn't uh, be where he was. I wouldn't want to feel that for anything in the world. So why don't you think about how you're making him feel? Once again, you have uh, an indication that the Yankee, Hank Morgan, is not a nice guy. It's easy to think he is. Easy to see this as a contrast between good 19th century America and bad 6th century England. But if you saw it that way, you'd be completely misreading the book. All right. Following 6th century political economy, these three chapters, which are an intrusion between the tragedy of the manor house and the consequences of the manor house, then you go back on chapter 34. Uh, the Yankee and the king have overdone it, especially the Yankee has overdone it, humiliating people. And he's turned the common people against him. And the Yankee and the king are hunted down and caught in a tree and sold as slaves by the earl. And then <laughs> the king becomes a passionate anti-slavery man when he sees slavery from the other side, when he's a slave himself. There's a chapter called A Pitiful Incident in which a young girl uh, who has had to steal a piece of cloth to try to feed her baby is condemned to death. But a good priest says he'll take care of the baby and be everything to it. And she's hanged at uh, 18 years old, something like that. And then an encounter in the dark where the Yankee thinks he's gotten himself free. He has made contact with Camelot. And Clarence is going to send knights to save him. Um, but he also makes a silly uh, move and gets himself caught again. And this time, the execution is scheduled for the same afternoon. And he suddenly realizes that the knights can't possibly get there fast enough. The knights are in Camelot, and he's in London, about to be hanged, along with the king. And the king, of course, is rearing, I'm the king of England, and they laugh at him. Well, in chapter 38, some of the slaves have already been hanged. The king is having the rope fitted around his neck when what should come racing down the, the highway from Camelot but 500 knights led by Sir Launcelot himself, the Invincible, all riding bicycles. They might, Because they went by bicycle, they could get there so much faster, they come in the instant, the very last instant before the king is about to be hanged and the king and the Yankee are saved. Uh, one of the great comic visions in Mark Twain's history, really. Uh, it's all Clarence's idea. It's, he's been keeping it a secret, and now he gets a chance to show off uh, his bicycle corps, 500 knights on bicycles. I've always wondered whether those are those high-wheeled bicycles that you see in the circus, you know, the eight-foot wheel. Uh, can you imagine knights in armor on a, on a uh, bicycle like that? <laughs> anyway... Uh, that's the vision. Uh, so this very long central section, which is a 
weird mixture of comedy, tragedy, laughter, and horror comes to an end. Way longer than it should have been. Oh, about three or four chapters could have been cut out without losing anything whatsoever. Maybe as many as seven if you drop the uh, arguments about free trade. The center of the book would be much better, be much tighter, and it would make much more sense. But as it is, it sprawls. Sometimes it drags. Sometimes it scares you. Uh, it's difficult reading. And it's no surprise that many people who are used to reading Mark Twain's earlier books, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn particularly, get bogged down by the Yankee and quit reading it, find that they're strangely discomforted by it. Maybe they don't even try to read it. It's uh, very different from anything that he wrote before. Anybody want to add anything here or to ask me anything or talk about this at all? Yeah, we're still here. Uh, we're just thinking of questions. Um, I I want to get back to, I know I asked you earlier who the picture of Morgan Le Fay might have been, and we're not sure of yeah. that, but what did she represent? She's the complete opposite of her brother. Arthur mm -hmm. is the noble king. She's the evil side of the of the family. Whatever, all the things that he is, she isn't. And all the things that she is, he isn't. And I think this goes back to Mallory. And Twain didn't make this up. That is consistent with what Mallory wrote, too. I yeah. just thought he might have put her in there for some reason. Well, I think he put her in there clearly because she represents evil as Arthur represents good. She's so evil... Uh, she doesn't even realize that there's anything wrong with being evil. Well, this is uh, Margaret. I have a I have a on a slightly different subject. Sure, go ahead. Um, you were mentioning earlier the the um, uh, the sort of the split personality aspect between uh, Mark Twain, the writer, and Samuel Clemens, and and in another uh, discussion, you mentioned uh, Twain's a biographer, and the name is escaping me just. Uh, Justin Kaplan? Thank you. Yeah, I knew I wasn't going to... Justin does, Kaplan is the author of Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. Uh, he chose that title because he is the was, I think, the first writer to really point out the discrepancies between the two sides of the characters. Actually, I've gone much further in my book. Oh, you haven't heard about that yet. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> All right, go ahead. No, that that actually was my question. Did does Kaplan's biography and and for that matter yours um, dwell or bring out these this sort of dichotomy to people? Well, I might as well mention my book now. It's I don't know what the publication date will be. It was supposed to be November next month, but I don't know if it if it will make it in November. It might be December or January even. But at any rate, the book is called Ira Fistel's Mark Twain, and. It's in three parts. The first part is a detailed study of his major novels, the kind of things we've been doing on this phone hookup here. Uh, the second part, I followed his track around the country to the places where he lived and, and worked and tried to get a feeling for how his environment affected his writing. It's really completely true that what he wrote when he lived in California and uh, Nevada is not at all what he wrote when he lived in Connecticut or in Elmira, New York. Uh, he became a completely different writer, different stages of his life. And uh, 
was under different influences at different points. And the third part is the really controversial part where I try to get into his head and explain why Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens became so divergent personalities. The uh, power that broke them apart. It took four years to write and about 35 years of thinking and, and research and whatever, and it's finally going to come out. I know how Hank Morgan felt when he saw the newspaper. I have a feeling that's how I'm going to feel when I see the book. It's not my first book, but it's certainly going to be, uh, I think, the best thing I've ever done. What did you think, uh, you folks out there, of this long, difficult middle section of the Connecticut Yankee? Did you uh, feel some of those emotions that I mentioned just a moment ago? Frustration, horror, uh, disorientation, anger, some laughter? Well, I, I felt the first part was awfully hard reading. Well, there's a lot of quoting of Mallory in there, too. Yeah, but it, it was... Uh, 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 hard to focus. Now, I, I kind of liked the part where he was, they were slaves, although it was a pretty rough going. And that last thing where they hang, kind of due to Morgan's fault that the, <laughs> these guys yeah. are being hung, you know. Well, in a way, yeah, because he got away. Sure. It's not pleasant reading. Gosh, it's a, even, even though I've read it many times, you know, every time I read it, it's creepy. Especially the, the the manor house story and the what well, the manor house was bad and the and the uh, smallpox thing was just just pretty. Well, awful. the smallpox yeah. had his great writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Arthur really emerges as a true noble hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but there have been people who have written about this book saying it besmirches chivalry. I'm quoting a major American critic of years ago. He didn't read, either he didn't read the book or he didn't understand at all what it was about. Because How can you say that uh, a book that depicts Arthur as a tremendously wonderful, noble person, uh, even though he's not the brightest guy in the world, uh, how can you say that besmirches chivalry? And you know who else is a, is a noble person in this, uh, in this book? Sir Launcelot. Launcelot is, of course, the greatest of all the knights, uh, Queen Guinever has a passion for him, and uh, he is uh, a noble person, passion or no. Why is he a noble person? Because at a time when he is about to make a killing in money in the stock exchange, which is what the round table becomes in this book, uh, he helps nurse the boss's sick child, stays up nights with her and uh, and helps to nurse her to health. He, in other words, gives up something valuable with no expectation of reward for the benefit of somebody else, thinks only of someone else. Launcelot is a noble character. So well, there are areas in the book where, where you could say that, but you know as well as I do that critics get several books to read and they skim over them and they don't know what they're doing. Well, yeah, you can't do that with the Connecticut Yankee. You cannot skim this book. You cannot skim this book. This book is a deep, uh, demanding read. You have to think, and you have to be willing to put the time in and the effort in. It's a great book. It's a flawed great book, but it's a great book, full of flaws. 
we'll get to one of the big flaws next time we talk when we talk about the last section. The last section is, uh, uh, oh boy, <laughs> if this is hard to talk about, the last section is even harder to talk about. But uh, it's much shorter and much more intense than the middle of the book. I wonder what the Connecticut Yankee would have been like if Twain had taken the time to rewrite and, and uh, reshape and polish the book and do all the work on it he did with Huckleberry Finn. You know, Huckleberry Finn took him ten years to finish, on and off. The Yankee took less than four. You say he worked over the last part of Huckleberry for a year, I mean... Yeah, he worked over the Huckleberry Finn manuscript for a year that, that, before he... That could have been a mess. <laughs> if he had... Well, just goes to that. show you, you know, uh, what... You know what hard work can do. He didn't want to work that hard when he got to the, with the Yankee. He was he was done. He thought this was going to be the last thing he'd ever have to write. Of course, it wasn't. But uh, he thought he was going to be a multimillionaire, and he didn't care anymore. Didn't want to didn't want to work that hard. Now, something else about this book. Um, it has a very dark. And we'll talk about this the next time we get to it. It's a very dark philosophy based behind it. Uh, when we do the last chapter, we'll talk more about that. But uh, the Connecticut Yankee is one step further down the road from Huckleberry Finn, which is one step further down the road from Tom Sawyer. And the Connecticut Yankee is one step ahead of Puddinette Wilson and two steps ahead of the mysterious stranger. And all through the adult part of his life, Twain had, well, not Twain, but Clemens, had an increasingly pessimistic outlook and an increasingly guilt-ridden uh, guilt life after the age of 35 or so. Didn't show up, and, uh, showed up as, as a young boy, but after 35, it started to get worse, and it particularly got worse after the Connecticut Yankee, um, in the Connecticut Yankee. Already in Huckleberry Finn, there's a big question uh, and this is one of the questions that Twain comes back to over and over again in his work. How do we know what's good behavior? What standards can we use to judge ourselves to know what is good and what is evil, what is good and what is bad? And in Huck Finn, Huck does the ultimate good. He sacrifices everything to, to steal Jim out of slavery. His goal is to steal Jim out of slavery, and he doesn't care how it's done, and he doesn't care what it costs him. He says in Chapter 31, he tears up the letter to Miss Watson, and he says, all right, then I'll go to hell. He's ready to go to hell to save Jim from slavery. Not only is he giving up his, willing to give up his social status and his own life and his uh, ambitions or whatever it is, he's willing to, to experience eternal damnation for the sake of, of uh, stealing Jim out of slavery. You can't ask for more than that from a person. Huck is, you know, Huck is a tremendous person. All right. What does Huck do? He tries to steal Jim out of slavery, which is the most, the biggest crime you could have in, the, in that society of that time, the slave society of that time. He does good. Does he think he's doing good? He thinks he's going to hell for it. He doesn't care. But he doesn't think he's doing good. He believes he's an evil person because that's what everybody's all told him all his life. His father's a drunk, blah, blah, blah. he never went to school, he's not religious, he's, he was a liar, 
uh, you know, he's the uh, a bad boy, and he believes he's a bad boy. He says, uh, well, I can't make any better of it. That's the way I am, and if it means to go to hell, I'll go to hell. And he does good believing he's doing evil. Now, what's the reverse of that? What's the reverse side of doing good while believing you're doing evil? Let's say huh? other doing sure, what something is real doing terrible, evil. thinking you're doing good. <laughs> That's right. And who thinks he's doing good and is actually not doing good at all in this book? Of course. Of course. Tom Sawyer, not Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn and the Connecticut Yankee are in some ways mere images. In, uh, in the Connecticut Yankee, well, let's start, start Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn, you have a young boy who is not a mature individual, who um, comes to recognize the importance of the close relationship between him and Jim, and he recognizes that Jim is a human being. He's a man, even though he's a black man and a slave, and he's not supposed to be a man by that society. So you have a young person who is detached from society and becomes the ultimate enemy of that society. And then at the end escapes. All right, in the Connecticut Yankee, you have an adult man, not a not a uh, an untutored boy. You can't you, know, you can't explain him away, uh, saying he's just too young to, to have different thoughts. And his thoughts are basically selfish. The Yankees' thoughts. Why does he want to create the 19th century in uh, in the sixth century? He says, well, if I'm here and I have all this uh, going for me. I'm going to rule this kingdom or wonder why. His goals are basically selfish. Right? And he thinks right. he's doing good. He's restoring uh, the, all the good things of 19th century America, not realizing in the process that 19th century America has some of the, all the same problems and the same evils that 6th century England has, only mm -hmm. magnified. In England in the sixth century, uh, how many how many people could uh, could be killed, for example, to support a regime? A few here and there. The technology was wasn't up to it. The only people who could kill somebody was a was a knight in armor, and all they could kill uh, you know uh, were a small number of people. What does the Yankee introduce in the last part of the book? I'm giving away you know, some of the things I'm going to talk about next time. But what does he introduce in the last part of the book? Electric fences, Gatling guns, uh, road bombs, mines, uh, all these mechanical devices that can result in killing wholesale. The Yankee kills 25,000 knights. 25,000. And he's just beginning. The Yankee uh, is applying the technology of the... 20, late 19th, 20th century, to killing. And Mark Twain foresaw World War One on the Western Front. What do you think? You know, World War One on the Western Front is practically described in the last part of the Connecticut Yankee. Uh, Twain, what Twain saw was that technology, without a moral background, without a center, will only result in more and more people being killed. How many people have been murdered in the 20th century? Uh, it's almost impossible to count.
but the number is up. Got to be somewhere near a hundred million people have been murdered uh, and, and killed in wars and violence and whatever. Pretty close. I mean, that's more people than there were in the United States at the time uh, Clemens was alive. And Huckleberry Finn uh, has a moral dilemma in it. Huck doesn't know what makes good conduct or bad conduct, and he does evil while he think good while he thinks he's doing evil. And in this book, Connecticut Yankee, it's even more difficult to know what's good and what's evil. Um, and I think what Twain found in his thinking, in his heart, uh, during this book, he found a society in which there is no guide to good behavior. There is no way we can know what's good and what's evil. Terrifying, terrifying thought. This is Sherry. I'm going to have to drop off, but I wanted to thank you for the very interesting presentation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. It was excellent. Thank you. Oh, well, well, well.